Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to have you turn with me in just a minute to John chapter 4 as we conclude our final study uh, tonight. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we have so enjoyed the last several weeks of understanding some of the mechanics that goes into preparing uh, Bible study. And the focus hasn't been on preparing it really for anyone other than you speaking to our own hearts. And that's what we want to continue with tonight, because we want that daily speaking of your Spirit into our lives, where we meet with you over the pages of Scripture, and there is a transformation that happens. Lord, we've met with you tonight in corporate praise and worship. Our hearts have been lifted. Burdens have been lifted. A new perspective has been attained because... We see our condition in the light of your ability, our inability in the light of your sovereign grace and power. Now, Father, as we continue this series on spiritual cooking, Lord, I pray that we'd put it all together and you'd help us to get it tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you think of somebody who's a celebrity chef extraordinaire, you probably think of Emeril. Right? Emeril Lagasse, guy who's known for making cooking fun and watching somebody cook exciting, entertaining. And he takes this into his kitchen and, you know, bam, and uh, moves it up to another higher notch and, and makes cooking really enjoyable. Well, we've been going into the kitchen, so to speak, of several people over the last few weeks on our own staff to understand things like how to observe, how to interpret, and how to apply the text. We want to continue with that tonight. I want you to know tonight a one, two, three blow, putting observation, interpretation, application, how it all goes together as I take you, so to speak, into my kitchen. And we're going to Now apply a text. We're going to take all that we've learned over the last several weeks, and you and I are going to work our way through a text and do all of those steps and walk away with how it's done. Now here's the statistic. On an average day in the United States, Christian bookstores will sell 34,932 Bibles. That's a lot of Bibles, isn't it? A hundred million Bibles are sold every year worldwide. And my question in seeing that statistic, is, it might be your question. What difference is it making? That's a lot of truth into a lot of people's lives. It hopefully is making a huge difference. But it's an arresting question, is it not? What difference is it making? You see, Jesus told, you'll remember the story about two builders... And one of them built a beautiful house, and the other built a beautiful house. And the only difference is one thing, foundations. One built on the sand, the other built on the rock. Now you think if there's one place you do not scrimp in building a house, it would be the foundation. But then Jesus summed it up in Matthew 7 by saying, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, 
I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. That's what we want to think about is hearing and doing. Jesus said to his disciples at the last supper when he washed their feet, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. And that's really the the graduation as we touched on that last week is applying it to our own lives. Now, I've heard people say things over the years like this. I've heard it in many different settings. Well, I don't want to get into the milk of the Word. I want to get into the meat of the Word. Well, Jesus had something to say about that. He said, my meat is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish it. The real meat of the Word doesn't come in academics. It comes in application. It comes in taking the Bible that is bound in fine leather and putting it into shoe leather and walking it. I had a friend that used to say, if you want the meat, it's in the street. You know, take what we know and take it out to the street and walk in it and live in it. Because we can all become experts in Scripture. And yet, being an expert in the Scripture, have an unchanged life. I had a friend, true story, came to my house years ago when I was in college, knocked on my door, tears in his eyes. He had been to seminary. He had studied. He had bought all sorts of books. And it was toward the end of his seminary experience. And he looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, Skip, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. And he went on to tell me how his professors took the Word of God and um, placed it only in the observation mode in the hypercritical mode and challenge the inspiration of Scripture, uh, challenge the Holy Spirit's involvement in Scripture, and had worked his way to such a place where he was uh, an astute observer without one who applied it, and now he's telling me he doesn't even know if he believes in God anymore. Paul was right. Knowledge puffs up. I've seen it. I see it year by year as people come to our school of ministry, and I like our school of ministry. I love it. I believe in it, and I believe in education. But I have seen some get a hold of a little bit of knowledge and just like a blowfish go, those big puffer fish, you know, there's really all air, but they look really big. And it's because you get a little bit of knowledge or even a moderate amount of knowledge, and it can puff up. There's a great story, a true story about a man by the name of Crawfoot, who was the chief of the Blackfoot Nation in Alberta, Canada. It appears that the Canadian Pacific Railroad approached this chief to see if they could put a a line of track, railway track, from Medicine Hat to Calgary, Alberta. In exchange for the chief allowing them to build the track on Indian land, they gave to him a lifetime railroad pass. That's right. He could show it anywhere, get on any place, and go anywhere he wanted the rest of his life by just showing the lifetime railway pass. Well, he agreed to it. They gave him the pass. And history tells us he placed his railroad pass in a leather pouch that he had around his neck and never used it once. But it was kept in a nice leather pouch, but never taken out and used. You get the drift. What we want to do is move from student to patient. 
It's one thing to be a Bible student, to observe and to analyze and to question and to read and to discuss. It's quite another thing on a daily basis to become a patient where we allow God as the great physician to do surgery on us, heart surgery, cut away at things, challenge us with things, add to our lives and rearrange us. That's what we want to do. Now picture this scene. It's early in the morning. You're there, Bible in hand. It's open. You got your notebook, hopefully. You're going to write things that you observe down and apply them to your life. You've prayed this through. Your heart is prepared. And what you want to do with all of your heart, I'm supposing, is to see those words that are in black and white become technicolor in your own experience. You want them to come off the page and into the very fiber of your being. So how do you do that? You do that, I'm suggesting, by six questions. I call these six questions that will revolutionize your quiet time. You ask, number one, how does this passage apply to my life? I'm reading a passage. What does this passage have to do with my life, my marriage, my job, my relationships? That's the first question. Second question, what changes will I make in my life? Once I know the application, what are the changes that I will make in my life? How will I put that into action? I've got to do something or stop something based on the text. Number three, how will I implement or carry out the changes What is my action plan? So how does this passage apply to my life? What changes do I make in my life? How will I carry out those changes? You've got to have an action plan. You can't just say, got to do that. How are you going to do it? Number four, what will my prayer to God be based on this text? Number five, what passage of the text that I read this morning or this evening will I commit to memory that is sort of the, the salient Uh, unifying verse of the passage. And finally, is there a picture or an illustration that will help me to remember this? Now, don't worry. I'm going to go over all of those again in the last portion of tonight's study. But those are the six questions that will revolutionize your quiet time. Now, what we're going to do tonight in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, are you turned there? We're going to look at a passage of Scripture, we're going to read it, and then we're going to go through quickly these things, observation, interpretation, application, and put it all together with those six questions. Now, to read our text tonight is a good friend of mine who's been a part of this church for a number of years. He does voices in the children's ministry. He's got a great radio voice. He's just a good guy, Ken Castell. Welcome, Ken, as he reads our passage tonight. Good evening, everybody. How are you all doing? Let's open our hearts to hear God's word. John chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink for me, a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, we will, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At that point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek her? Why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went away to the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not come? There, do you not say, there are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that, the, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you have not labored, Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Amen. Way to go, Kenny. Thanks. Okay, so there's our passage. We read it. Now let's make some observations. Let's test out our observation skills. If you remember, 
We talked about asking those basic journalistic questions that any journalist would ask in any kind of an event. Who, what, when, where, how, and why. So let's just make a couple of observations. Number one, who? Who is involved in the passage? You shout it out. Jesus, Samaritan woman, disciples, the Samaritans, the crowd of Samaritans who live in the village of Sychar. Those are the four primary groups of the people that are involved. Okay. Number two, when? When did this story, this event take place? What's that? Sixth hour. Well, let's, let's, let's kind of take it generally. First of all, in route. It says he is traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee. He's going from south uh, to north. And Samaria is in the middle geographically, though not practically. Geographically it is. So Jesus is in route. That's when it took place, when he was going from south to north. And the, the second thing we're told, somebody shouted it out, was the sixth hour. Which, if this was Jewish reckoning of time, is around 12 noon. Which, if it's in the hotter months, and we presume it is because of the the context here, it was nearing the time when the heat of the day builds up. And that's the time when people typically rest and find refreshment. They don't carry large jugs of water on their shoulder. And women would often and usually come to the watering spot, the well, early in the morning, not at this time of the day, which may give us an indication of when she woke up in the morning as a possibility. Maybe she had quite a night the night before, and she didn't get up till late. But whatever the reason, it's interesting to make the note when you just ask the when question. Okay, where did it take place? Samaria is the general region. The city is Sychar, and specifically at a well, Jacob's well, the well that Jacob the patriarch had dug and left for generations to follow. Okay, next question. What's going on in this story? Uh, Simply this. Jesus, in route, takes a break from traveling, sits by a well. The disciples go into the city to shop for food, bring it back. A woman comes to the well. It affords Jesus the opportunity to speak some personal issues into the life of a woman who's there to gather water. Uh, Fifth question, how? How did Jesus approach this woman? He approached this woman in in a very simple, customary uh, appeal to kindness. Give me a drink. Give me a drink, he said. Now, she didn't respond really favorably. She's sort of shocked that a Jewish male, who's a rabbi especially, would even dare enter into a conversation with her. But Jesus draws her into this conversation, and by comparing ordinary water, something she was very familiar with, as was everyone, with supernatural refreshment, living water, with each step of the conversation, he draws her in until she's face-to-face with the Messiah, and he reveals himself, saying, the one that speaks to you am he. And number six, why? Why is Jesus there? Why is he there? Verse 4 gives us a hint. Notice it says he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. Or as the old King James so classically puts it, he must needs go through Samaria. That word needed tells us that 
Jesus didn't stop by this well because it was coincidental or it was on the way necessarily. In fact, we'll discover it wasn't. But because of divine providence, there was something else that drew him into this situation. It was a planned event. So those are just simple observation questions. Okay, we're observing it. We're noticing these things. Let's dig a little bit deeper now. As we look in the text... Are there any words that are repeated words or repeated phrases? Now, I've got to tell you, I have a little bit of an advantage because I've gone over this to prepare this. And I don't know when you've gone over John 4. But are there any words that are repeated words or phrases? Well, there are. Samaria is mentioned seven times. Uh, Samaria, Samaritan, through Samaria, uh, the Samaritan woman. Seven times the author wants you to know that this is not just an ordinary audience, a typical Jewish audience in Israel that Jesus has had in Galilee or in Jerusalem. But he wants you to know that this is a special people in a very specific area. And so the attention is drawn seven times that it's to Samaritans or in Samaria. Also, the word drink appears six times. And water appears seven times, so 13 times. The author is drawing our attention to the quenching of thirst. A universal experience. Everybody is thirsty. But it's a universal physical experience to draw out a deeper spiritual point. Those are things we notice. Um, Next, are there any peculiar words or phrases? Now... That's a little subjective. Not everybody would agree, but let me suggest the word Messiah in verse 25 is a peculiar word. Um, To a Western mind, it's not a Western concept, Messiah. It's originally a Jewish concept. And though it's worked its way into our vocabulary, we have to deal with a word that is peculiar to an area and a people and a book that prophesied it and come up with the idea of what's the original idea of Messiah or Christ. Because apparently this Samaritan woman, along with the other Samaritans, were anticipating some Messiah, some figure to come and reveal to them the right way to worship, as mentioned in verse 25. Next, probing deeper, are there any comparisons or contrasts that stick out to us? Well, there's one notable one. I draw your attention to uh, verse 3 and 4. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, John puts that in there to say, hey, this is noteworthy because Jesus has done this on many occasions, going north to south, south to north. But this time he needed to go through Samaria. Now, anybody at that time who heard that would have said, why? Nobody needs to go through Samaria. It wasn't the typical route. Jews avoided Samaria. They would always go around it. It was not the normal way north to go through the rocky foothills of Samaria. So something else besides the ease of travel drew Jesus to Samaria. And uh, if you keep reading the text, it will reveal why he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to speak to a woman. 
He needed then to reach a village who was reached through her change and her testimony of meeting Jesus Christ and their subsequent hearing of the words of Jesus. Here's another comparison. Physical water, living water. This is physical. This is temporary. This is spiritual. This lasts. This won't last. This will last. That is a comparison. There's another comparison. The woman herself in the conversation makes a comparison between worship that is done in Jerusalem by the Jews on Mount Zion, the Temple Mount, and the worship that takes place on Mount Gerizim, the mountain that they're at, at Sychar. This temple, this is the place we Samaritans worship. You Jews say Jerusalem is the place. So she's comparing two places of worship. Jesus cuts through that, transcends it, and says, none of that's important because the Father wants people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Also, are there any figurative expressions in our text? Well, living water is a figurative expression, right? Um, What does living water mean? It actually means moving water. But it's a figurative expression of continual satisfaction. Jesus refers to it in verse 10 as the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God. And in verse 14, he speaks of the living water as an internal source of refreshment. Inside of you or inside of that person will spring a fountain of living water that is refreshing. There's another figurative expression in verse 21 and 23. Hour. Jesus says, the hour is coming and now is. That's figurative. He does not mean a 60-minute block of time that you measure on a clock. He means a period of time, probably referring to the New Testament, the New Covenant. The hour has come and now is. It's not going to be geocentric anymore, the worship. You don't have to do it at Jerusalem. You don't have to do it at this temple. It's not about being geocentric. It's about it being theocentric, God-centered. It's the person, not the place. So there's a contrast and a figurative expression that is there. Let's continue to dig deeper. Is there anything strange in the passage? Are there any salient features, noteworthy features, about the situation or the characters involved? Well, it sure is. There's a woman who's been a miserable failure at a relationship. She's been married five times and now she's living with a boyfriend. And a man, the God-man, who knows everything she's ever done and she didn't tell him anything. Okay? We've read this so many times, it may not impact us that much. We're familiar and comfortable with the deity of Christ. But to the first-time reader, this is noteworthy. That's strange that here you have this woman with this background and this guy that already knows everything about her who's just come into town. And believe me, it was strange especially to the woman who heard it the first time, the Samaritan woman. Okay, when you dig deeper and you ask yourself the six journalistic questions, who, what, where, when, why, how, and then you look at comparative words or phrases or repeated words or phrases or figurative language, all the things we've been taught. One of the techniques that helps me personally 
is to try to place myself and picture myself somewhere in the scene when I read. I try to figure out what the temperature might be like, what I might be wearing, what other people are are saying, and where the crowd is going, and what it smells like, and what the sound of the sandals against the stone sounds like. Try to picture yourself there. It's a great way to read the Bible. So what I'm going to do to you or for you now is I'm going to read my putting myself in the story somewhere. And I'm reading from a book that I wrote, How to Study Your Bible and Enjoy It. It's just easier for me to do that. Uh, because I took this story and I placed myself in it. And, and just listen as we go and you get the idea. The day is warmer than usual. I'm sitting on a rock just under a eucalyptus tree that stands about 30 yards from the well that Jacob dug hundreds of years ago. It's noontime, and a solitary woman is making her way along the dusty path leading out from the nearby village. Perched on her shoulder is a large jug for fetching water. As she approaches the well, she notices a man leaning up against the stones. He has obviously been walking a long time. Sweat covers his face, and a weary look creases his brow. Having no bowl to lower down into the well, he asks the woman to give him a drink. Her answer is surprisingly abrupt. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan, one of those people you don't associate with. Why would you even ask me for a helping hand? The man's reply is calm but piercing. His words seem strange as if he's in another world. If you knew who I was, you'd be the one asking me for water that would quench your thirst forever. Now, what does he mean? I wonder as I brush away a buzzing swarm of flies. He's just thirsty and tired and judging by his words, perhaps a bit delirious. The woman's response is again curt. You don't have anything to hold water in. So how are you going to get the living water you speak of? Her terse words are accompanied by a sneer developed over many years of dealing with men. You'll get thirsty again, you know, the stranger replies. You'll be right back here again tomorrow. But I have a source of refreshment that you'll find so satisfying you'll never want anything else. I lean forward on the rock where I'm perched. This is the most interesting conversation I've ever heard, especially around these parts. Who is this guy, anyway? The callous Samaritan woman isn't quite as impressed. She answers the man with a smart-alecky response. What are you, greater than Jacob who dug this well? I'm just dying to hear where to get this unusual water you say you have. Just think, I won't have to walk out here every day in this heat. As the stranger... At this, the stranger abruptly changes his tone. Get your husband. The woman stops and looks directly into his eyes. I'm not married, she bites back. Now, why did he tell her that? I muse. Before I can ponder the thought any further, the man says something that disarms the woman and takes my breath away. You're right about that. Although you've been married five times in the past, right now you're living with a man who's not your husband. Now I recognize the woman. She's the one that everyone in town knows as being a bit loose. She's been married so many times, she probably forgot the names of all of her husbands by now. But how on earth would this stranger know anything about the woman's past? 
That's exactly what the woman would like to know. Who are you, she asks. You must be a prophet or something. Seizing the opportunity of being with such an unusual and spiritually insightful person, she launches into a discussion about religion and the coming Messiah. Although her life has been far from spiritual, she's thirsty to know more. She says she expects one day a Messiah will come, and then we'll know if the Jews were right or the Samaritans were right. That day is today, the stranger calmly declares. You're looking at the Messiah. My throat is dry from not swallowing for the last few minutes. A surge of adrenaline shoots through my system as I try to take in all of this information. Am I hearing correctly? What did he just say? Could it be possible? As these thoughts whir inside my head, the woman woman drops the water pot and runs back toward the village. But she's not running in fear. She's running in excitement. That's a way of going through the text. Picture yourself listening to this from a little bit of a distance or being in the crowd and hearing this and catching the reaction. It will help you to pick up on some of those things that we observed in that first part of the process. Okay, let's move to the next step. Practicing our interpretation. We've seen what it is saying. We've observed the things that help us know what the text is saying. Let's look at what it means. And this is the interpretation. And it's already been covered, but there are rules of interpretation, right? The fancy word is hermeneutics. It doesn't mean something Herman does. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. There's five general rules I believe you've been taught. You interpret every text by its context, every text by the words that are used, every text by the grammar of the words, every text by the background of the passage, and every text by the unity of Scripture or what the whole Bible says. Let's briefly do that. Let's look at the context. Now, with context... Context just means with the text or around the text. There's something called immediate context and something that's called remote context. You've already been taught that. The immediate context is simply this. Jesus stops by a city called Sychar and has an encounter with a woman and in so doing brings salvation to her and many people in that city. That's the immediate context. Now, there's a greater context or the remote context. If you were reading the Gospel of John through in your daily quiet time, you will have noticed that John is drawing our attention to how Jesus' fame is spreading and how people are dealing with either with faith or with unbelief, how they're dealing with what Jesus says and who he is. And so John gives us little vignettes, little cameos. Uh, in the first several chapters, from John the Baptist to Philip to Peter to Nathaniel to uh, Nicodemus to the people of Cana to the people in Jerusalem and now the woman at the well of Samaria. He's giving us these little snapshots of how his fame is spreading and how different people are reacting. That's the general context. Okay, so we interpret it by the context to find out what it means. Second, we interpret it by the words that are being used. Now, you're not going to be able to look up, nor am I, every single word in those 42 verses, unless you want to be in this passage for the next, what, four years. But there are certain words that beg you to look closer. And one of them you already know. 
or put together living water. Living water. That jumps out to you. You want to find out what those words mean. You want to find out if those words or that phrase is anywhere else in the Bible. And so you, back to Pastor Dave's study, you take out a Bible dictionary or a concordance or a cross-reference in your Bible, and you discover that Jeremiah chapter 2 has such a reference, where God says, My people, the Jews, have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have dug out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. They've left refreshment for stagnation. That's a picture of their idolatry. Then there's a couple of other times where that phrase pops up. The prophet Ezekiel and the prophet Zechariah anticipate a time in the future when their words, living waters will flow from Jerusalem. So John is writing about, and Jesus is using here, a metaphor that was understood already as something that spoke of refreshment and cleansing. And now Jesus brings it all to life as he applies this to himself. What does the grammar show? Now, I know nobody likes to talk about grammar. Ever since our high school English class, we have nightmares about grammar. But there are some times when grammar and often a commentary, you know, you've been shown how to use a concordance and a Bible dictionary and commentaries. We had those sets that were available in the foyer. Sometimes a commentary will be responsible enough to point you to a piece of grammar that sort of changes the whole thing and reveals something that you wouldn't know otherwise. So you always want to interpret according to the grammar. And one such verse, I'll just cover one, is verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Now, why should it amaze them that he was talking with a woman? Well, first of all, because it was against social protocol. Uh, Jewish men, especially rabbinical men, did not engage publicly with women in this manner of discourse, especially a woman like that. It was just against protocol. Social protocol forbid it. But number two, because the grammar of verse 27 shows us that when Jesus spoke to the woman, it's in the imperfect which means continuous. Jesus was talking, and he continued to talk. And the disciples come with the food, and he doesn't acknowledge them or bring them into the conversation. He just keeps talking and talking and talking to her. He engages with her. Now, why is that important? Because it's showing us the emphasis. Jesus is saying, what she needs now, spiritually, is far more important than my physical need of food. This is more important than that. I'm not going to leave this to do that. In fact, the passage bears this out. As down in verse 31, In the meantime, the disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And Jesus said, I have food to eat which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So that little piece of grammar can be very helpful to us in many cases. Next is background. We interpret according to the background. This is where a Bible dictionary 
or a manners and customs book that Pastor Dave spoke about in the tool section will be very helpful. Because all you'd have to do is look up, and I do this just about every morning when I'm in my quiet time, there'd be certain words or things that I want to look up and get background on. Look up Samaritan or Samaria or the Samaritans. Look it up and find it. And you'll discover that there had been a long-standing hatred by this time between Jews in the south and the Samaritans in the mid-portion of the land. And it stemmed all the way back from 722 B.C. after the Assyrian captivity. The Assyrians took the people out of the land, repopulated it with foreigners from other nations that they had taken captive, and those pagan foreigners intermarried with the poorest of the land, the Jews who were left over, so that the offspring that settled in the region of Samaria were sort of regarded as the half-breed Jewish castaways that none of us have anything to do with. Things got so bad, your Bible dictionary will tell you, that eventually the Samaritans not only broke with the Jews because they weren't allowed to rebuild after they came back from captivity, so they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim and had their own worship system and developed a whole rival religion right there in the land. Well, that helps us. That little background helps us. Now we understand what the woman meant when she said, why are you talking to me? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And they haven't had dealings with the Samaritans for a long time. And it's because of that long-standing animosity and antipathy. And five, we always interpret with the rest of the Scripture. We want to to interpret our text with the whole rest of the Scripture. And why is that good? It'll keep us from jumping to a conclusion that isn't balanced out or borne out by the rest of the Bible. Sometimes somebody can come up with an interpretation. They feel really good about it. Only one problem. It contradicts everything in the Bible. That means that either you're right and everybody for 2,000 years of church history of writing commentaries is wrong, or maybe you should adjust your view by interpreting your text through the rest of the Scripture. And so you consider living water. You compare living water here with Jeremiah 2, with Ezekiel, with Zechariah, which gives you the balance of the interpretation of that text, keeps you from jumping to a wrong conclusion. Here's another way to look at it. The story of Jesus here going to a forbidden area, the half-breed area, the reject area of Samaria, is that consistent with the rest of Scripture? Oh, it sure is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus stepped out of heaven and came to the earth. And here's a microcosm of leaving a place of comfort and familiarity and going to a place of a group of people that have been rejected by every other Jew in that land. Also, Romans chapter 3, where Paul says, Is God the God of the Jews only? Not of the Jews only, for he is also the God of the Gentiles. So we have the balance of Scripture that helps us understand the heart of Jesus has been the heart of God all along. So we're observed, we've interpreted, we know what it says, we know what it means. Now we want to practice our application. We want to practice our application. Now what I'm going to do is go through this and give you some of my own applicational points as I've applied this in my quiet time. I'll share my own reflections. Okay, now I've given you six questions at the beginning, right? 
Six questions that will transform your quiet time. The first question is, how does this passage apply to my personal life? Well, the first thing that strikes me about the passage overall is the emphasis on worship by Jesus. Yes, he's dealing with the woman. Yes, he's dealing with Sychar, the people, that he's the Messiah. But there's a a sort of an overarching singularity of the heart of God in worship. And what strikes me is that to Jesus, it's not where you worship. It's that you worship and how you worship. In spirit and in truth, not in this mountain, not in that place. But it's that you worship and how you worship. So that speaks to me. It applies to my life this way. I can be in a cathedral. It can be grand. There can be trappings that remind me of the celestial city of heaven. There can be a great pipe organ in it. And I go, wow, that sounds great. Or I can be in my car with a CD in. Or I can be out in the desert somewhere, broken down with my Bible, and the presence of God can be experienced in that place because it's not where you worship, it's that you worship and how you worship. It's not the art that impresses God, it's the heart. It's not about the temple and where it's at and how cool it is. It's the heart of the person. And to God, there's two parameters that must be followed. Truth has to go along with the directives of the Bible. And spirit, I'm led by his spirit and my spirit embraces that. I worship in spirit, in intensity, in sincerity, and in truth. And you can't separate that. Oh, he's so sincere. He just believes. Yeah, but is it according to truth? Then it could be according to truth and sort of dry and stale, but there's really no spirit in it. God is looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. The combination of that together. So those are the two parameters. So I'm applying this to my life this way. Once I have come to the source of refreshment, Jesus Christ, I must drink often in the well of worship. I must drink often in the well of worship. I've come to Jesus. He's transformed my life. But I must, on a regular basis, worship in spirit and in truth, which will continue that refreshment. That's how the passage applies to my life. Second question. What changes must I now make now that I've applied this to my life? Well, here's a few. Number one, I resolve that I'm going to take my cues of of worshiping God from the Scripture. Not from the latest trend in a worship magazine not from the cool trend that's happening in some part of the country or or a new worship leader that's come, but I'm going to take my cues from the Word. That's the truth. God is looking for those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Here's another thing I can do to change my life. I can start every morning or end every morning session of devotion with some concentrated time of worship to God that's based on truth and that is from my heart. I can do that every day. That's a resolution that I can make. Number three, I can thank God that though I'm imperfect and that God knows everything about my imperfect life and all of my thoughts, He still loves me. Do you ever think about that? 
God knows everything about you. All the things that, that you keep hidden from all of us. For good reason. God knows everything already. And he loves you. And he so wants to forgive as you confess. And he so wants to get in there and change like this woman. Next, this is what I can change. I can ask forgiveness for the times that I have responded to God like this woman at the well of Samaria with not much depth. That's how she started relating to Jesus, these flippant answers in the conversation. I can ask God for forgiveness. And finally, I know what I can do. When I'm done with this Bible study, I can call a friend or tell somebody at the gas station or somebody when I get to work something that God has shown me that day. Just like the woman who left to tell the people of the city, I can actually do that today. That's what I'll do. When I'm done, I'm going to tell somebody what I learned. Just like this woman, I'll take her example. Now I'm applying it, and now I'm changing concretely, based upon the text, behaviors in my life. Number three, how am I going to carry out those changes? What is my game plan going to be? Well, here's one thing I could do, and I do do, is to begin my time of devotion by reading a psalm or a portion of a psalm that is now worship to God framed in a biblical model. And I can get my cues from talking to God and worship based upon the psalms that are written. So now I'm worshiping according to truth. I'm not making it up, though I can certainly speak from my heart, but I can take my cues from a psalm every single day. Here's another thing I can do to carry out these changes. I'm going to be going to church Wednesday night. I'm going to be going to church Saturday night, and I'm going to be going to church Sunday morning. I have to go to all of them. (laughs) And when I go... I can make sure that I come with my heart prepared to worship with the congregation. I'm not going to just throw this thing together. I'm going to actually think. I'm going to meet with God in the, in the company of my brothers and sisters. I want to prepare my heart and come and worship in spirit and in truth. I'm going to seek Him. I'm going to ask Him to reveal Himself to me. I'm going to ask Him specifically about certain areas. I'm going to come prepared. I can carry it out. And, like I said, after I'm done with the worship service, I'm going to call a friend. I'm going to call a friend tonight and tell him what God has done. Okay, four. What should our personal prayer be about the passage? Now, I've included this in the six questions that will revolutionize your quiet time for this reason. I believe when God reveals himself to us, and he does on a daily basis through his word. Every time there's some way God speaks to us, I think we should begin, as soon as that revelation comes into our heart, and make it a matter of prayer. We convert that back into prayer. Believing God has spoken to me, I now reflect that back to him. And in reading this passage, it might be something like this, Lord, you are worthy of all praise. Forgive me for the lack of it in my life. I really want to glorify you in everything that I do every day of my life. Forgive me for the times I've drunk from the well of materialism or for the well of lust or the well of self-importance or the well of greed. Forgive me. Be my all in all. That's my prayer based upon this. Five. What verse in the section that we read tonight is the one verse that I'm going to commit to memory 
Now, not everybody does this, but I'm going to recommend scripture memory. Imagine if every day of your life, every day, you memorize one verse of scripture. Think of what you'd know in a year. 365 different, salient, noteworthy, emphatic verses that God has spoken to your heart and you've applied. Well, the one that I'm going to commit to memory is verse 24. God is spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I can take that verse, and if I'm not quite sure about it, I can just jot it down or cut and paste it on my Word document you have a Bible program, print it out, put it in my pocket, walk around with it, refer to it it during the day. And if you just do that, you just do that, you just do that, you make it a habit, you'll have that memorized. In a year, you'll have 365 of those verses as a part of your life. David said, your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's powerful. Now, number six, I'm going to make it optional because not everybody's into this. It's helpful for me, I've found. What illustration will I draw that'll help me remember this? I'm good at remembering things if I can visualize or see something that reminds me of it. Now, you don't have to do this, but I'm supposing that every morning you have a Bible and a journal. And you're maybe journaling down some of the things God is teaching you. You're reflecting that, or you do it at night whenever you do it. But... Is there a little drawing I could make, optional, of course, that when I see it will remind me of this truth? And so I have a drawing for you. I could draw two mountains and a man in between the mountains (laughs) kneeling down, worshiping. He's worshiping. But he's worshiping. See, there's two mountains. He's conflicted. It's like, well, which mountain is it? Jerusalem or Gerizim? But then, drawing the picture, and you don't have to be a good drawer, obviously. That is not Rembrandt, folks. Then just take away the mountains. Take away the mountains and put a Bible in his hand. Ah, now it's not the place. It's not the place. Or keep the mountains and just draw an X through them. Or a a, a round circle with a dash. Like, doesn't matter. Cancel. And now you have a man, hands raised, with a Bible saying it's not about the place, it's not this mountain or that mountain, for God is looking for those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. So if you were to make your observation, make your interpretation, make your application, how I'm going to include it in my life, what is my action plan, what am I going to do? And you know what? You say, this is a lot to do every day. It seems mechanical. It seems like a lot. That's how I cook. And... It might seem mechanical and stilted at first, but it will become natural and reflexive as you go. It will just become natural. You'll start picturing yourself in it. You'll start noticing things. You'll jot the things down. You might do a quick word search in your dictionary or something, and you might do half of it in the morning and half of it before you go to bed at night. Nothing wrong with that. Or you might want to do this concentrated kind of study once a week and just kind of pare that really down tighter for your daily study and say, okay, and on Friday or Saturday, I'm going to kind of do all of this, but on, on uh, Monday through Friday or Sunday through Friday, I'm going to do this thing, but I'm going to really pare it down to just a few of those items of understanding what it means, what it means to me personally, and, and memorizing a text. So that's how to cook a spiritual meal. Don't be like Crawford. 
Don't carry that promise in a pouch. Don't be the kind of person who just says, cool pouch, huh? And see, I'm showing you my pouch because I just got my Bible recovered this last month. And it's my old standard Bible, but it's, it's covered with new leather because the other one got worn out. But don't, don't just keep God's promises in the leather pouch. And don't just be content to read the words on the page. This is how to cook a meal that you will feed yourself with by the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And you will see slow but sure life changes. And we call that in Paul's vernacular being conformed into the image of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we've covered a lot of stuff in the last eight weeks or so. Six, eight weeks. We have looked about how to observe, how to slow down and notice things that we might just not notice unless we were deliberate about it and intentional in that. We've learned how to ask simple questions and even probe deeper by looking at things that are repeated or strange, something that the author wants us to go to or recall or notice. We've learned, Lord, to go beyond observation and to make a reasonable interpretation, to take any text in the Scripture and feel at home and comfortable by interpreting according to those five interpretive principles of context and words, grammar, and background, unity of Scripture. And now we've learned how to make it our own and apply it. And all those steps are necessary because they will take a book and make it live. And truly, your word is alive and it is powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. But Lord, we, we just can't keep it in the pouch. We have to take it out and let it live as we put it into our shoe leather and we walk in and we live it. Lord, I, I indeed pray that this church would be like the early church those who continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And then moving beyond that, fellowship. I pray our fellowship would be sweet, authentic, real, accepting. And Lord, that our prayer, all of that, all of those Four items, breaking bread, prayer, fellowship, the Apostles' Doctrine. We'd be firing on all of those cylinders. Raise up leaders, Lord, in this place, from this generation. We pray that men and women, and dare we ask specifically for young men and women who will help take this work that you have begun into the next generation. We ask for leaders. And we pray, Lord, that you would do a transforming work in our lives and that you, through your church, would do a transforming and redemptive work in this city and in this state. This is the place you've called us to, Lord. Help us to be your agents to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. 
thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.